You're listening to the Bible Guys podcast from Piedmont International University. I'm your host, Devin Ferguson, along with professors Jerry Hullinger and Rick Kleinard. The Bible Guys is a podcast focused on knowing God better through what he has written. You can find out more by following us on Twitter at BibleGuysPod and on Instagram. You can also contact us via email at BibleGuysPodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to this episode of the Bible Guys. We actually have something really cool. I think for the this is our first message, audio message that we've gotten on the Bible Guys podcast. So if you have the Anchor app, you can click something called Send Message. And what that actually does is it, it lets you record your question so we can actually play it on the air, uh, listen, to, listen to your voice, and, and answer your question. So we actually have someone who's done that. And uh, Dr. Hollinger, Rick, I'm, I'm just going to play this for you guys and so we can hear this question. Hey, Bible guys. I was wondering if you could discuss the warning passages in Hebrews and verses throughout the New Testament, such as Colossians 1.23, that at least seemingly teach that security of salvation is conditional on our continuing in the faith. Thank you. That's a great question, and there are a lot of verses in the New Testament that indicate, I was going to say seem to indicate, but I don't want to be presumptuous here, that indicate that if, if you don't continue in obedience, if you don't continue to be faithful in the Christian life, that you could possibly lose your your salvation. And one of the groups of texts the individual brought up was in the book of Hebrews. And as people know, there are various warnings throughout the book, and one could construe that to mean that you could lose your salvation. I think that book is so big, and there's so much to say there, maybe we should leave that for another time. But I did really like the example he brought up of the Colossians 1 passage, which is a case in point where the same thing seems to be at stake. Right. And so let's read that passage. Uh, we've got a couple different translations, but Devin, what do you have there? I've got the NET, of course. So Absolutely. Go yeah, ahead and read it for I'll us. I'll start with that. And how about we start in verse 22? But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to, be, to present you holy without blemish and blameless before him. If indeed you remain in the faith, established and firm, without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. When we see those kind of passages, there are pretty much maybe three schools of thought that approach them differently. And I thought, I thought maybe that'd be the easiest way to start through this text, to, to look at the major ways that people will, will view these. Probably the first one, as, as the listener suggested, is there are some who would argue that this teaches that we can lose our salvation. Yeah, because if you read that text, it's like, hey, this is going to happen unless this. And so commonly what happens is you might think a person either a sin in their life or they just kind of dismiss the whole concept of it and just move on from it or, or, or leave it, and they have thus sealed their doom, if you want to use that terminology. Yeah, and commonly this is called Arminianism. I don't know if that's fair. I'm not sure Jacobus Arminius actually taught that. I believe he said he wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. But but in the common vernacular, a lot of times it would be associated with Arminianism. And one of the, the interesting things about this losing your salvation thing, I think there are a couple of fundamental errors. Mm -hmm. One of them is who performs the act of salvation in the first place. I would agree, um, because... 
when I hear people, when usually as a, as a teacher, when people come to me and say, hey, I'm really struggling. I don't know if I'm really a believer. Maybe, maybe I've done something that, that has lost it. I'm like, I don't know if you have a good understanding of what salvation really is. Because if you're doing something that can lose this, then, of course, you've heard the old adage, you must have done something to earn it, which is not the case of salvation. Um, this is a salvation, as we know, is is a gift of God. Um, we we have talked about wanting to do a whole podcast on what is justification. Yes, that will be great, and and that really would help seal this understanding. And as you mentioned in an earlier podcast, Devin, when you understood justification, it really changed everything. And I agree for this in the same way. When I understood what it meant to be declared righteous, mm. then it it really. I didn't have an issue with this. Anymore. Yeah, that is that is a legal verdict that God passes down. And if God has has laid down this legal verdict, if salvation is a forensic issue in terms of justification, he's not going to undo that. And moreover, we would add that you know, because of our depravity, because of our sinfulness, as you point out, there's nothing we can do to get it. I mean, this is all the work of God. And so one of the fundamental errors of this view is that it doesn't understand salvation. Another problem I have with it is you really can't define it. Hmm. Uh, How do you know when you've done enough to lose it? For some people, it's, well, after one sin, and they get saved over and over and over. For other people, it's a pattern of sin, or for others, it's just some heinous sin they commit. So the very fact that we don't know should give us a clue. Maybe God <laughs> doesn't even address this as a possibility. Now, that brings up a good point, because I spoke with a gentleman one time, and we were having this conversation, and he said, I agree with you. There's nothing you can do sin-wise to lose your salvation. However, what if you willingly remove yourself? So it's like, I know no one can take me out of the Father's hand, but what if I jump out of the Father's hand? It was basically what he was saying. Yeah, and I, I think that's the same issue. It's a misunderstanding of what salvation is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also a misunderstanding of, I mean, if you really ask this person, okay, do you want to go to hell? Is that what you're saying you want to do? Right. Of course not. I mean, when we are saved, our desires are changed. Our, so we may say that in a moment of anger at God or something, but, but we're not saved by anything we do. We're not even saved by our faith. Uh, we're saved through our faith. So I, I just think that's a bogus argument. And and I would also bring in one of my favorite passages in Romans 8, which I think is the culmination of his discussion on assurance. At the end of the chapter, he's listing all of these po- possible separators. And at the very end, he says, nor anything else or any other creature. I can't remember exactly how he puts it. So it's almost as if Paul is saying, look, I've listed every possible thing I can think of that would cause you to lose your salvation. But for the, you know, the jerk out there that, that isn't satisfied with the list, here's kind of a fill-in-the-blank thing. Anything that bothers you, put it in the blank. That will not separate you from the love of God. And it would undo all of the doctrines of Scripture, uh, election, predestination, uh, God's plan for us. So not to mention the numerous texts that would argue that you cannot lose your salvation. Now, we've, I think we've 
we all agree this has nothing to do with losing salvation because this is that's a theological issue here. We we're it's one of those that's not what this is talking about. We can we know that from the rest of text. The law of scriptural harmony really helps us with this one. We know that's not what's happening here. That's, that's good. Yes. So what about those who will say, okay, this has to do with perseverance. It has to do with the real Christians are the ones who persevere to the end. Well, those of you who like flowers, you're familiar with the tulip, and uh, Rick has just elucidated the fifth point of the tulip, perseverance of the saints. One thing that we should say right off the bat is that, and a lot of people confuse this, even Calvinists, even in some of the Calvinist literature they confuse this, perseverance of the saints is not the same as the preservation of the saints. Right. That needs to be stated at the outset because a lot of times I'll say to people, I do not believe in the perseverance of the saints. And they say, oh, you think you can lose yourself? No, that's not what I said. Right. I said I don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. Yeah. When people ask me that question, and it seems like that comes up a lot, especially when you start teaching Bible, I think that's the question I've gotten the most besides what translation you use is, well, are you? what do you, what do you think about Calvinism? Mm-hmm. I always ask, what do you mean by that? Oh, that's such a good comeback to that. And then they say, well, you know, the tulip. Okay, okay, well, keep going. What do you mean? What do you mean by the T? And I, I take them all the way through. And we, when we get to the P, I'm always like, okay, yeah, are you meaning perseverance or preservation? And yeah, that's not what I, I'm not saying I can lose my salvation because that's not what perseverance is that, saying. That's exactly right. So. We do affirm, at least I think, I've not mm-hmm. asked Rick or Devin personally, but I think I'm safe in affirming that we believe in what is classically referred to as eternal security. That's right. And that's what we mean by preservation. But as you point out, perseverance is something much different mm-hmm. than that. So how, how does, does this passage teach perseverance, as, we, uh, as some people allude to? Well, I don't think that it does. I'm, I'm, I've really not seen, I mean, I've looked at the arguments, I've looked at the passages, and I really don't think that perseverance, and this kind of sounds harsh, but I really don't per- think perseverance is a, a biblical doctrine. And because typically what people mean by this is that if one is truly saved, then they will, and this is an important term, they will necessarily persevere in a pattern of good works. That doesn't mean sinless perfection. People who believe in perseverance obviously hold that Christians sin. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they sin horribly. But the point is, if one is a true Christian, then there will be a continual pattern of good works. And even if they, they fall into some heinous sin, they will come back, they will repent, And so passages like this interpreted through that grid would mean that if one doesn't continue in the faith or if one doesn't remain in the faith, then, oh, that just shows they were never saved in the first place, whereas if one does, then that's proof that they are saved. And then some, which we'll probably talk about later, carry this to the extreme that perseverance is actually a means of justification. And I think there are some prominent Protestants that are really <laughs> teetering on the Roman Catholic view of justification here. But but that's another matter. But 
But I think you're right. There are a lot of people who would interpret this through a perseverance grid. And I, what I appreciated what you just said, you were, you were really charitable to those who you would disagree with. You, you said some are going to say this about them, but that's not true either. I think we're missing that in theological discussions. We're very quick to set up the person who disagrees with our view as the enemy who must suffer. Um, and by whatever means necessary, we have to bring him down. I, I really appreciated that. And that's something what I like about uh, PIU is that we have different professors who don't agree on everything, um, but we're charitable with one another. One, some of my favorite times are in the hallway having a conversation impromptu, and we, we start talking about something funny, and the next thing you know, we're talking about the Genesis account, and if it's, if it's the way traditionally held, or it could be other ways, and we, and we walk away, no one sees each other as a heretic, we, we have a good conversation, and I like that, and I think that's good that our students need to see that, that it doesn't have to be what you think is true. I was a complete jerk upon graduation from Piedmont. Uh, I knew I had everything memorized. I had my charts down, and anyone who disagreed with me, oh, fallen from the faith, and I was the vanguard of all faith. What an arrogant guy I was, and God broke my heart over it. Um, sometimes even it caused strains in relationships that I'm even now healing from or trying to heal with that person, but I'm I'm really grateful that you said that. I know it's not part of the discussion, but I'm really glad that our listeners got to hear a charitable understanding of an opposing view. Well, I love that about the school as well. And, and you know, you do the same thing in your classes where when we come to maybe a passage like this, you know, we state the other views. Mm-hmm. And it's really incumbent on us to accurately state them and, um, you know, many times there'll be really good people on the other side, yeah. and and we have to really make sure that we've looked into it thoroughly. But, um, yeah, I think that's a really—I really enjoy that about here as well. Yeah, dear brother once told me, and he used to teach here, um, and I think he's a listener because I, I looked on the stats, and his country he's in, there's 1% of the population that listens to us. I'm like, well, it's got to be him. Um, so, I think I know who you're talking about. So you about. know who you are. Right. He used to say— you hold your theology with humility. And that stuck with me, and I've stolen it, and that's just, that's it. Mm. Believe what you believe, yeah. but hold it with humility, realizing that there are, there are men and women who have forgotten more Bible than you'll ever know mm-hmm. differ from you. Mm-hmm. So I think we can reject the, the view that one can lose their salvation, and I, I think we would agree that this text isn't teaching perseverance of the saints, Though, of course, some, some take it that way. So I think it then would be incumbent on us to give, give another option here as to what we think is being said. Okay, so it's not, eternal, it's not loss of salvation. Correct. We don't believe it's talking about the perseverance. Right. What else could it be? Well, when I come to passages like this, there are two questions I ask. More than that, but, but here are two big ones. The first thing we have to ask is, to whom is Paul writing? I think that's a critical point to make. And the way we discover the audience is you just got to go through the letter and you've got to look at the kinds of descriptions and the argumentations that he uses. This is going to be really pedantic, so forgive me for doing this, but I've just got this list of descriptions of the readers. 
In chapter 1, they're called saints, faithful brethren. They have faith in Christ. They love the saints. They have a hope laid up for them. They bring forth fruit. They have love in the Spirit. They have been delivered from Satan. They've been redeemed, forgiven, reconciled. In chapter 2, they're steadfast in the faith. They've received Christ Jesus. They're built up in him. They're complete in him. They're circumcised spiritually. They're buried and raised with him. And then in chapter 3, they're hidden with Christ, and they're a chosen people. I mean, come on. How do you go through the letter with those kinds of descriptions and not conclude that he's writing to Christian people. Right. So that's one of the problems I have with the perseverance view, that it's just hard to get past that right. for me. He's obviously not writing to someone who could not, who might be, might not be a Christian. Yeah, and, and I do have the agreement with the perseverance people that, yeah, there are a lot of people professing to be Christians that, that really aren't. So I'm not debating that at all. I'm just questioning based on how they are described. So that's always the first question I ask, you know, who's being addressed here? Right. That should inform us. And then the second question is to ask, what is the nature of the danger that the readers are facing? Yeah, what was the occasion, the reason why Paul's writing? Exactly. Now, um, if I may, in this one, um, Paul is writing to a church that is apparently plagued by a false teaching or false teachers teaching that false teaching. Um, and there's different schools on on what this is. Um, I did some research on this. I wrote a, uh, an article paper on this of what was the nature of the Colossian heresy. Mm. And you have some saying it was um, an, an incipient form or a proto-Gnosticism. Um, you have some that was... Uh, saying it was more of a, a Jewish mysticism. Um, the, the thing about it, when you look at it, it was it was the nature of this heresy, whatever it was. It was it was a syncretic of of both, because mm. uh, you saw both Jewish mystical elements, but also some Gnostic sides of things. We wouldn't go ahead and call it Gnosticism because it hadn't developed yet historically. But you did see there was a danger, which is why Paul has to write things about you know don't let anyone dis- disregard you because you don't follow this form or this form of worship. Um, so, so that was something, that was an occasion of him writing, was to clear up this false teaching. Yeah, I, I like how you put that because, you know, with the Colossian heresy, there are, there are actually like 32, 33 views of what the Colossian heresy was. And whenever you have that many views of a heresy, I think the best way to approach it is just like you did Go through the book and look at the characteristics of it, because I'm not sure we can put a label on it. And um, he's going to talk to them, and he's going to warn them about being moved away from the hope of the gospel, right? which is not the same as the gospel, being moved away from the hope of it. Um, he's going to talk to them about being entangled in persuasive arguments. He's going to warn them, warn them about deceptive philosophies. He'll talk about, as you mentioned, some Judaic elements and asceticism. So those are the dangers that these people are facing that they might cave into. So I think if we look at how is this audience described and then what is the danger they are facing, I think that that is paramount as we come to these texts. So as we're reading through this passage, that was the thing that stuck out to me. Because he says in verse 23, and I'm reading the NET, it says, If indeed you remain in the faith, established and firm, 
without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Yes, huge point. Yeah, he's not shifting from the gospel. They're not leaving the right. gospel. It's they've lost or they've moved away from the hope they once had. And so that's an important line there. It's an important prep phrase. What are they shifting from? The hope. Now, some might group it all together, but you really can't. And so now we ask the question, okay, what does Paul mean by the hope of the gospel? Oh, that's so good. Um, so the hope is, I think, hope in the Bible is not like we talk about it in English. Right. Rick and I are both Cub fans, and oh. before 2016. 2016, how can I forget? It's the best year ever. Yes. Um, so before 2016, for our whole lives, we were hoping the yeah. Cubs would win the World Series, which I still am not convinced it actually happened. Right. <laughs> now, But you brought up a good point there with that, and I use that. I use that phrase a lot when I describe what the word hope is. Hope, I mean, I had no evidence. The fact that every year... We were the lovable losers. Right. Every year we would spend money on guys who are on the downward slope. Or just had surgery. Right. And we were the rehab team. We were the, the, right. the rehab Cubs. And it's like, okay, you know what? We're going to finish. We have a losing season. And sometimes the most, as a kid, sometimes the most entertaining parts of a season were just Harry Carey's dialogue oh, on the mic. loved it. And so just enjoying it. But then here's what happened. We, in, in the early 2000s, we got close. The Florida Marlins game, everybody blames Bartman. I don't want to get into it. He wasn't the only one reaching for the ball. Um, but he was the one that no, – never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> then, then even – so that was really close. We were five outs away from it. Then after that, we got to – we got we had like the one year, the best record in the National League, swept in the very first divisional series. I remember. You're like, okay. So what happened was they got good enough to get us – just close, and then they, nope, you can't take it. And so it was getting to the point where it, when I was a kid, ah, eh, if we, we did, we won today, that's awesome. I'm still a fan. But now it's right, we're really close, and you took it away from me. I'm getting anxiety. You got to do something. Mm-hmm. Then, um, then 2016, it, it just seemed like the, everything was coming together. Even after, you know, we, we, this happened, Schwarber, you know, breaks his leg the very third game of the, the third Boy, game. Boy, I remember that. And, and you're like, oh, what happens now? What do we do? And anyway, just kept going, kept going, kept going. And then we get to the series. You know, we beat Kershaw at the Dodgers. We get to the series. We win the first game. You're like, whoa, this is awesome. And then we lose three straight after that. And and I had Indians fr- fans, friends going, oh, we're going to take it. We're going to take it. I'm like, this is so sad. And then we won a game. Then we won the next game. We had it, get, and we were going into game seven. Then, even then, it was Wednesday night. I remember I just taught the college ministry. Somebody said, hey, Dexter just hit a homer. We're up by, you're up by one. I'm and like, you're more spiritual than I. It's like, the heck with that. <laughs> Man, I'm watching this game. Hey, I was, playing, I was playing on my cards. I was like, all right, Lord, you know where I'm at right now, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, anyway, so, so we went up, but everybody was like, oh, you're, oh, wow, they're up one. I was like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't jinx it. We had a big lead. I had people from my church texting me congratulations like I just had a baby. Like, you're going to do it. Congrats. I'm like, what are you doing? Don't do this. I know enough about the voodoo of baseball to know you're wrecking this. And then they tied it, and I'm like, you guys ruined everything. And I was ready to do church discipline on some members. I'm really <laughs> upset. Um, but the rain delay, and I know I'm waxing nostalgic here for the last five minutes, but the rain delay, when we when then uh, – 
Zobris's hit mm-hmm. that brought that mm-hmm. brought us ahead. I was like Rizzo with my head on my head, going, "Wow, we're gonna do this." But then, you know, that next inning, the last out. Oh, I was gonna say the last. The out. last you out. You know, Bryant, Bryant slips. slips. Yeah, and I'm like, there it is. It's gonna go in the first. It's gonna go in the front row, and they're gonna score. I was shocked when Rizzo caught it. I actually was like, did he, did he actually catch it? And then I thought it was going to be a tie, and I thought they were going to have a replay, and it would be yeah. reversed. I was stressed out right. on that last time. I, I didn't have time to actually celebrate. Now, the whole point we just did that for was we had hope, but no assurance of hope. No, no like, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to do it. Now, here's the thing. when I did not enjoy the World Series in 2016 when, as it was happening. I bought the DVD and I enjoyed it a lot more. Hey, I still watch the Bears '85 <laughs> <That's> DVD. <awesome. laughs> well, I enjoy the 2016 series a lot more on DVD now because I know what happens. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the concept of hope in the New Testament. I know what's going to happen. So whatever I'm so when me and Eli, are, my young, my oldest son, are watching the DVD, and you know we're watching that game where we get shellacked by the Indians. I'm like, hey man, it's okay. We win Game Seven. We win game seven. That's really the, the idea of hope in the New Testament. It's It looks rough right now, but we win game seven. Yes, hope in the New Testament is a certainty. It's the assurance of our certainty. And the assurance and the certainty is based on the gospel. That's why we can have hope. And so the problem with these readers is what he's warning them against is you're going to lose this confidence and this assurance that you should have based on the gospel. And as you said very well, it's not the gospel that's, mm-hmm. that is at issue here. It's they're going to lose this confidence and this assurance of it if they're drawn away to these various heresies. And so that that's an important thing as we come to interpret this to keep in mind. Right. So they're not pulling out, they're not re or, or shifting away from the gospel, they're shifting away from the hope, the certainty they have. And according to the rest of the text, because as you said earlier, so so how does this now then apply how does this now apply or how does this play out in the rest of the text? Right. So I think the in verse twenty two, the conditional element, and this is variously translated if you remain, if you continue, etc. The conditional element is going back to the idea of pres- presentation in the previous verse. So if you continue in the hope of the gospel, if you're not led away by um, these various uh, problems and these these false teachings, then you can have a good appearance. Uh, you can be blameless at the judgment seat of Christ. And so I think the presentation here, which is really the nearest antecedent to the conditional statement, um, would be this appearance before the judgment seat of Christ. If you take the perseverance view, you really have to go back to the reconciliation even before this, which to me would make a great deal of sense because if you're reconciled to God, you're reconciled to God. There's no, that's that's a done deal. But um, so I think in view here is a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that's an important passage here. And that's an important part that it's not that they are, number one, you're not losing your salvation. It's not about persevering to the end. It's about that losing the hope in the, that we have from the gospel. 
maybe it's even a better way of saying it, but that, that hope we have because of the gospel. Yeah, and we all know from experience that when we drift away from God, our assurance wanes. When we maybe fall into false teaching, our assurance wanes, and that, that leads to all kinds of problems. And I think we should also point out that this idea in the New Testament of appearance being presented at the judgment seat, that's a very common one. In fact, the same word that's used here is used in um, Romans 10.4, where it's the exact same concept. And some other passages I thought of, uh, Jude 24, where again the warning to the re- Jude's readers is, you know, they're going to fall prey to false teachers. Well, his goal is that they be presented blameless and unblameable. Um, another observation I would make here is that all Christians will appear at the judgment seat, but not all will have persevered so that they will have a good review at the judgment seat. And that is Paul's ultimate concern, I think, in this passage. And I think it, I agree, because as you go down a little further, um, as, you've, as you've made a note of, this passage has to do with that, because if you look at the last few verses, verses 28 and 29, which has, I, I have used this before, um, this is like kind of my mantra as why I do what I do, why I teach, why I pastor, um, in the NET, we proclaim him by instructing and teaching all people with all wisdom so that we may present yes. everyone mature in Christ. Toward this goal, I also labor, struggling according to his power that powerfully works in me. And so again, in that last line, first of all, in the last two verses, you see the goal of is to present. And then again, it's not your energy, it's Christ's energy in you that you're working toward that goal and... Um, struggling with his power that he works in you. And that that's that verse you mentioned in 28, that's really what clinches it for me because that shows Paul's purpose in warning them about what he does warn them. And if I can just read it again for emphasis, that we may present every man perfect in Christ. And I think this is going back to this judgment seat concept. He wants to present them as mature believers. That's what, That's his goal for them. And they'll only get there if they're not led astray uh, by these false philosophies. Right. Well, we love these kind of questions, and we're hoping you're, you're listening and you have these questions. We'd love to answer them. Again, as Devin mentioned earlier, you can go to Anchor through the Anchor app, and you can record it there. You could also email us at bobbleguyspodcast at gmail.com uh, or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to have your questions. This has been the Bible Guys podcast from Piedmont International University. Located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, PIU is a Christ-centered university committed to educating aspiring leaders worldwide through exceptional teaching, scholarly research, creative innovation, and professional collaboration. You can find out more at piedmontu.edu.